Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Today we're beginning a new sermon series or a new Bible study series called The Doctrine of the Trinity, and this is part number one. Tonight we're looking at the subject of the role of God the Father. By means of introduction, I want to share with you that maybe, maybe you're like me and you've heard all of the crazy illustration methods of trying to explain and illustrate the Trinity. We've seen and heard people using eggs to try to explain the triune God. We've heard of people using apples to try to explain this God that we serve. Shamrocks, the states of matter, and geometric shapes, just to name a few ways that people try to illustrate the Trinity. I like what one writer said. They said, illustrating the Trinity is a noble goal, but it is ultimately an exercise of pointlessness. Theologians throughout the centuries have racked their brains in a quest to formulate a, doctrinal, a doctrinally sound, fully satisfying illustration of the triune Godhead. What hinders these efforts is the fact that God is transcendent and some of His qualities are unknowable. We read in our passage here, the prophet Isaiah emphasizes that God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. I'm here to tell you something this evening, that, that man cannot fully comprehend God. But that does not negate our responsibility to dive into the Word of God and try to understand what God has provided for us in His Word. Today, I want to share this with you. The Trinity is the most important aspect of theology because it contains the foundational truth of the one true and living God. And that's this. There is one and only one true living God who is eternally existing, and entirely expressed in three distinctive persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A theologian by the name of Paul Enns, maybe you've heard of him, but I, I want to quote him and Elmer Towns. I, I believe that as I've read all these many different definitions of the Trinity, I like how they word it best. Enns says, while there is one God, there are three eternally distinct and equal persons in the Godhead existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are distinct from the other, yet the three are united as one God. And here's what Elmer Town says. While God is only one divine nature, there are three persons called Father, Son, and Holy Ghost who are equal in nature, distinct in person, and subordinate in duties. Throughout Scripture, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and everywhere in between, we read about the oneness of God, how God is one and there is no one else. 
In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4, we read that Moses writes, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We read in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus in chapter 12 quotes back from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 44, we read about how the prophet Isaiah declared that there's one God and beside him there is no one else. We read in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the writings of the Apostle Paul, he said there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then in James, the marvelous letter of James, James says about the demonic spirits or devils, as the King James uses, he says the devils believe that there's one God and they do well. They do well in the fact that they understand that there is one God of this universe and cosmos. However, we come to the book of Genesis in chapter 1, and we read about how the Bible says, Let us make man in our image. In verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God, singular. But in verse number 26, it uses a plural form of God. So how do we understand this? How do we make sense of this? Well, the only way for it to make sense is not to use an egg, is not to use an apple, is not to use any of these other earthly artifacts, if you will, to illustrate the triune God, but it is through the trichotomy. That is the theological meaning that is mankind is a triune being like God. You see, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit is one God. And if God made man in his image, then we would be a tripart being like God, but one individual. I am one being. I have a mind or a soul, I have a body, and I have a spirit. When my spirit exits my body, my body no longer functions as it is right now. And so the trichotomy explains this the best way. Simply, God, who is a triune being, made up of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, made man in His image, we are made in His image, therefore mankind is a triune being made up of body, soul, and spirit. We read that in Paul's letter to the Thessalonican church in chapter 5, verse number 23. He talks about your whole spirit and soul and body. Now, throughout history, I want you to know that Satan has been on an attack to dethrone God from his kingship. Satan has been on attack to ridicule the very words of Scripture and to decapitate the words of Scripture. Satan hates the Word of God. That's why in Genesis chapter 3, he sheds doubt upon God's Word. And so let me just tell you something today. If you're going through a period of doubt in your life about God's Word, that is a spirit of Antichrist. That is a spirit of Satan. Because Satan, from the very beginning, has tried to make man doubt the very authenticity and reliability of the Word of God. But I'm here to tell you something. In Satan's efforts to try to silence and destroy and deteriorate and cripple the very words of God, God's Word stands true because it is forever settled in heaven. And I say that to say this, that even from the very beginning, Satan was on a mission, the true conspiracy theorist. That is, Satan is on a mission to try to take God's position. And we read time and time again, he uses the same tricks, but on different people. And the church was birthed 
We believe on the day of Pentecost. Jesus already ascended up to the Father. Peter preaches that message in Acts chapter number 2. And as he preached, all these people heard him preach in their native tongue. It's as if, if, I, if my native tongue was Spanish, and I spoke in Spanish, and your native tongue was English, and you would hear me in English. And we read about in Acts chapter 2 how God moved and thousands came to know Jesus as their Savior. But as the years trans. As the years transpired in church history, we see that these Jewish believers believe the Old Testament monotheistic God, Jehovah, and that God was manifested through the form of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and then they, they believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah that was predicted about God in flesh. But there came up in the few first hundred years of church history, and even alive and well today, some misinterpretations about the Trinity. You see, although the Bible never specifically uses the term Trinity, the Bible uses the term Godhead. Romans chapter 1 specifically, and maybe a few other places. But the, the biblical term that we should really use is the Godhead. And the Godhead is a one God made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, but I want you to understand this. The, I'm, I'm only going to talk to you very briefly before we dive into our, our, the meat of the message tonight. And that is the three misinterpretations of the Trinity, or the Godhead. The first one is tritheism. Individuals who promote this teaching say that God is, is not exactly what we would imagine God to be. But He is three, there are three who were God and only related in loose association. In order to try to explain this view, these proponents will illustrate the concept by pointing to Peter, James, and John as examples, saying that these are all individual beings, but they are all three separate individuals. The major error with this doctrinal belief about God is the abandonment of the unity within the triune being God. And it denies the oneness of the three persons within the Godhead. The second one, maybe you've heard of this one. This one is, is still alive and well today, really. It's called modalism. Um, Sibelius, or Sibelianism, is the man... Sibelius is the man who lived about 200 years after Jesus Christ and is the man responsible for modalism. He spoke of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, he understood all three as being three modes of existence of the same God. Dr. Towns defines this view this way. The Trinity is three different manifestations of the same God. It denies the nature and distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity. The heir of this doctrine correctly acknowledges the common properties of the persons, the properties that distinguish the persons from each other. During, by the way, during the birth of Christ, we see the Holy Spirit was the agent of conception with Mary in Matthew chapter 1. When Jesus was baptized, we see the Holy Spirit of God descending down upon a, like a dove, and we see God the Father speaking, and we see God the Son present being baptized by John the Baptist. So we see all three individuals, persons of the Trinity right there. So it cannot be this perspective. Both of those accounts de clearly debunks modalism because all three of these personages of the triune God are present functioning in their own distinctive manners. Now the third one right here is one that's really alive and well today and really popularized through anybody who denies 
the deity of Jesus Christ. It's called Arianism. A bishop by the name of Arius proposed the idea that even though Jesus Christ was highly exalted above all mankind and worthy of great honor, he should not be viewed as God, but as God's first and greatest creation. More specifically, he claimed God is solitary and the Father is uniquely God. He also claimed the Son had an origin and was created out of nothing. He says, God made a person, whether word, spirit, or son, when he chose to do so. He also says, the word, or said, the word has a changeable nature and can remain good by practicing free will, however long needed. Also, he said, the substance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are divided and differentiate, and, and they made difference through each other. Arius, by the way, lived in the 300s A.D., just 300 years after Jesus Christ. And, and you've got to understand, you have other theologians who, 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 who stood for the orthodox view of the monotheistic God spoken of in the first, and the first Old Testament and the second Old Testament books, the major books of the Bible the two testaments, the two covenants. But I want you to know this, that all this was, was oversought and thought out and processed. And in 325 AD, Arius, along with his teachings, were condemned as heretical. With that in mind, tonight, I want to emphasize this thought, that there is one and only one true and living God who is eternally existing and entirely expressed in three distinctive persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And tonight, I want to ask this question. What is the role of God the Father? And tonight, I want to share with you, as, as, as briefly as I know how, I want to share with you five roles of God the Father and how the Father functions. So if you got your Bibles there, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And in this first role of the Father, I wrote down this first thought. The role of the Father and creation. The role of the Father and creation. When you read the Genesis account, which it is a historical account, this is the exact way that the world was created and made. Right here, no other resource compares to the truth found in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says here that in the beginning, God, singular, created the heaven and the earth. And then in verse number two, it's interesting. Here in the first opening chapter of the Bible, we see two persons of the triune God present. I believe God the Father is present here. And then in verse number two, we read about God the Holy Spirit. And it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, the Father was actively involved in creating the cosmos. He was. God the Father was actively involved in creating the cosmos right here. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. So when you look out into the world, you know that when you look up into the sky, you see the clouds, you see the sun, you see the stars, you see the universe. We know that God created all that's in the universe. But I want you to know this, that the primary agent that was used through the triune being, as the New Testament illuminates our understanding of this, we see that the New Testament speaks about how Jesus Christ specifically spoke the world into existence, but we see all three of them right here, present, actively involved in the creation of the cosmos. 
The Holy Spirit is there moving upon the face of the waters. God the Father is present. And in a sense, God the Son is there speaking the universe into existence. We read in John, John's Gospel, it says that all things were made by Him, speaking about the Word, or Jesus Christ. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in John's Gospel there, it speaks about how the Word was God and was the same in the beginning with God. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little, a little later on. So God the Father was actively involved in creating the cosmos. But now if you got your Bibles, as we, we've seen right here, you look at day one, you look at day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and then God rests on the seventh day. We see all this, God the Father was actively involved, God the Son spoken into existence, and the Holy Spirit was present there, moving, especially in verse number two, upon the face of the waters. But I want to share with you, secondly, underneath the role of God the Father and creation. I wrote down the first sub-point here is God the Father was actively involved in creating the cosmos. But secondly, God the Father was actively involved in creating mankind. Take your Bibles now and turn over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 26. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 26. Paul the Apostles, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these believers in Galatia, these churches in Galatia. This was most likely a circulatory letter that went to multiple churches here in the Galatia area. And in verse number 26 of Galatians chapter 3, in the middle of this, the discussion, right before the discussion, how there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no bond, there's no free, there's no male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. In verse number 26, the Bible says in chapter 3 of Galatians, says, for you are all the children of God, check it out now, by faith in Christ Jesus. Here's where I like to emphasize that all of mankind is the created children of God. We are here because God created us. We are. So everybody in that sense is a child of God, but not every person is a regenerated child of God. And the difference is, is I've been created by God, by His grace and mercy. He's given me life. And I don't deserve life. I don't deserve any kind of quality of life, whether good, ugly, or bad, or somewhere in the middle. I don't deserve any of that. But God in His grace has given me this life and created me. But then, when I was 16 years old, He regenerated me. And that is, he, he gave me his spirit and saved my soul. And so today, I, I stand here to testify that I am a product of the handiwork of Almighty God, not just as a created being and a created child of God, but also as a regenerated child of God. As Jesus said, I am born again. I've been born from above because the Holy Spirit of God now resides in me and lives in me. And he's changed me. He's transformed me. I am not who I used to be. And today, church, we can be so thankful that the God of the universe loves us in such a way that has given us life. None of us deserve life. Whether, it's, whether we're sitting in a nursing home and we are paralyzed and we can't even speak, or we have the most um, amazing life man could ever imagine, none of us deserve any kind of quality there in between. But God has given us life, even though we don't deserve it. So let's thank God for life. And then if you're saved, thank God that He regenerated you and saved you. And if you're not saved, hey, what's stopping you, man? Get right with Him before it's eternally too late. The God of the universe wants a relationship with you, and He demonstrated that by creating you and allowing you to enter this world. I also wrote on this, God the Father is the source for creating every good thing. He's called the Father of creation. Look at James chapter 1. 
James, one of my favorite books of the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift, every good thing in your life, every completed thing in your life, all of it, is, the Bible says, is from above. Ultimately, I believe that this is ultimately picturing the Son of God, the greatest gift ever given to humanity. But I want you to know that this outside of God the Son being the incarnate um, uh, Savior, we know that other good things God gives us. The Bible says no good thing will He withhold to those who walk uprightly. Faithfulness. And it goes on to say that is a gift from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is the Father of creation and the Father of lights here, as the Bible says. The role of God the Father in crea creation is simple. He was actively involved in creating the cosmos. He was actively involved in creating you and me, mankind. And He is the source for creating every good thing. Every good thing in your life is from God. You may not believe that. You might re try to reject that, but it is the divine truth of Scripture right here, James chapter 1. Okay, so we've looked at the role of the Father and creation, but now I want to share with you, secondly, the role of the Father in salvation. We've looked at how God is at work, in, how the Father is at work in creation, but now I want to look at how is God the Father at work in salvation. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I just referenced this chapter a few moments ago about being born again. But the most famous verses in all the Bible is verses you can quote. But I'm afraid that sometimes a verse such as John 3.16 is a verse that we, we, we can quote, and we quote it so fast that we don't allow the words of Scripture to penetrate our hearts. So I want to read it slowly. It says, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, verse 17. Take it out now. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Here's what I wrote down. God the Father sent God the Son to pay for the penalty of sin and to give us eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son to pay the penalty for sin and to give us eternal life. Here the Bible says that God sent the Son into the world not so that we could be condemned and judged by Him in this moment, but that the access and the doorways and portals of heaven could be opened so that we could receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus' body was broken. That's why Jesus' blood was shed. It's because He was sent by God the Father. I also wrote on this. God the Father exalted God the Son on the cross in order to draw men to Himself. John chapter 3 is all about regeneration and salvation. And then in John chapter 2, it's all about exaltation. Because when, when, when Jesus is exalted, I want you to know that mankind will be drawn to the cross because of the Father. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over there to John chapter 2, to the right. John chapter 2, and, excuse me, John chapter 12, John chapter 12, and verse number 32. 
John chapter 12 and verse number 32. Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. God the Father sent God the Son to the cross so that God the Son could be exalted upon Golgotha's hill so that the sins of humanity could be paid for once and for all and allow direct, direct access so that the people living on this earth could have a personal, literal, real relationship with God. That is amazing grace. <laughs> How sweet the sound. If you got your Bibles now, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Another verse. Another verse of Scripture. This one is about how God is orchestrating, how God is sovereign, how God is in control, and how God works everything out for His own plan and His own purposes. Romans chapter 8 is a verse, is a chapter of Scripture that is just mind-blowing. Like every time I read this chapter, my mind is literally blown. I'm amazed of the goodness of God found right here in Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, a verse that you know of, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. All things. Everything, God is going to orchestrate it out for His good. Now, here's what I wrote down. God the Father is orchestrating everything in our lives for His glorious purpose. God the Father is orchestrating everything in our lives for His glorious purpose. I may not be able to fully comprehend why you're going through what you're going through. I may not fully be able to comprehend why you've had so many surgeries in your life and why somebody else doesn't have hardly any surgeries. I, I can't fully comprehend some of this stuff, but what I can comprehend this is that God is sovereign, God's in control, and God's going to work it all out for His greater purpose. I like what one preacher said. He said, everything happens in our life for our good and for God's glory. Our good so that we can be drawn closer to Christ and be more conformed to His image and His glory so that we can give God the glory for every trial, every triumph that we go through in our lives. God the Father is at work even in the salvation that we've obtained through Jesus Christ. God the Father is at work in creation. He's called the Father of creation, the Father of lights. And He is at work, my friends. But now I want to ask this question. What is the role of God the Father and His relationship with God the Son? Thirdly, this evening, I read on this, the role of God, excuse me, the role of the Father and the Son. John chapter 1. We've already looked at Genesis chapter 1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the only other passage in Scripture that's so similar is John's Gospel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning... That's going back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, where it says God, singular. And then it speaks about the Holy Spirit moving or hovering, if you will, over the waters. And in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning, that's back in the book of Genesis, was the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ. And it says this, check it out now. And the Word was with God. Speaking of God the Father, that He was there with God the Father, and in a sense, God the Holy Spirit. And then it says, and the Word was God. Here, speaking of the triunity, the trinity, and the, the three 
part Godhead. That God is one, but he's made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then check it out now. Verse number two says, the same was in the beginning with God. As I read this verse, these verses, here's what I wrote down. God the Father did not create God the Son, as some theologians in, pa in the past have tried to say, and even still try to say. God the Father did not create God the Son. The Father and the Son are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. And the same thing goes with the Holy Spirit. All three of them are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. But they have three separate functions and distinctives. They are at work in our lives today. And make no mistakes, Jesus was not created even though he was made of a woman, as the Bible says. He always existed and always will exist. We see that. But here we see that, that God, as some have mistakenly said, that he created the Son, he did not create the Son. That God the Father did not create the Son. They are coexistent. Psalm 2 and Matthew 3. As I read these passages, I wrote down this. God the Father, in the most reverential and unique way, fathered the incarnate Son. You might be listening today and and you might be sitting here thinking that, that your father had nothing to do with you in your life. That your father, that, to, to, that, you, that you, would, you would classify your relationship with your earthly father as just you being an orphan. Well, I want you to know this. That Jesus Christ had no earthly father. So he can sympathize and empathize with you. He's been there. God the Son has been there. But here's what I want you to know. That Jesus Christ had a heavenly Father. So many times when he was praying in John's Gospel, he said, My Father. In Matthew's Gospel, when he said, Let me teach you how to pray, Our Father, he prayed. So many times, Jesus referred to God as his Father. In John 14, chapter uh, verse number, number 6, we read that the Bible says that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus loved his Father. And the Father, God the Father, loved God the Son. We see this expressed in Psalm number 2 in verse number 7. It says this, I will declare the decree the Lord Jehovah has said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Just because the word here uses begotten, and, and, and the John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that, that through the Holy Spirit was Mary conceived with child of the, of the Holy Ghost, and then God the Son came, Jesus Christ, in flesh. That, now all it means is that God the Son had no earthly father, but He had a heavenly father, God the Father. And He laid aside portions of His divinity and he experienced many of these things. In Matthew chapter number 3 and verse number 17, we read these words about at the baptism. You see, I referred earlier when, when, when debunking modalism. Here it says in verse number 17 of Matthew chapter 3, after we see that, that God the Father is present, God the Holy Spirit is present, and God the Son is being baptized. In verse number 17 of Matthew 3, it says this, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom 
I am well pleased. Just as God the Father, in a unique and special way, Father the incarnate Son, God can father us too. We, in a sense, are orphans. We, in a sense, are in the bondage of sin, and we need a Father that can rescue us from the powers of darkness, and only Jesus can do. Only God the Father, only the Godhead can save you and deliver you. Only Him. Also, I wrote down this. As I read Luke 2 and Luke 22 and, and John 5, here's what I wrote down about the Father and the Son. God the Father accomplishes will through God the Son. You see, God the Father sent God the Son into the world to go to the old rugged cross to die for our sins. And God the Son, we'll talk about this later on, about dealing with the Son, but He, the Son, submitted to the will of God the Father. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter number 2, and verse number 49, we read these words. And He said unto them, How is it that you sought Me? Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? God gave him specific orders, and he said, I'm going to be about my Father's business. And in like manner, we are called to be about the Father's business of reaching the lost and exalting Jesus Christ and pointing people to him. Then in chapter number 22 and verse number 42, the Bible says these words, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Jesus is praying, remove this cup from me. And then Jesus says this, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus submitted to the will of God the Father because God was his Father. And when Jesus spoke and told in the Gospel of John that God was his Father, the Pharisees grabbed stones because they said, this man blasphemes because when he said he was there, that God was his Father, that he made himself equal with God. John chapter 5 and verse number 17. The Bible says, Jesus answered and said, My Father works hitherto. And I work. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have a work that I've been commissioned to accomplish, and I will not allow anything to deter me from that. So far, we've seen the role of the Father and the Son. We've seen the role of the Father in salvation. We've seen the role of the Father in creation. But what is God the Father's role concerning provision? How does God provide for our needs? Well, I'm glad you asked, because fourthly tonight, I want to share with you the role of the Father and provision. If you got your Bibles, turn over to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, we read a fascinating, most interesting, and intriguing story about a father named Abraham and his only son who typified the Son of God, Isaac. And here the Bible speaks about Abram's testing. And he says that myself and the lad, with the companions that he was with, he said, we're going to go up yonder and we are going to worship. And God asked Abraham to take his only son and to offer him as a sacrifice. That'd be hard to do. 
And so as soon as Abraham had the, had the knife up in the air to slay his son, he heard a voice, and it was the voice of God. And then later on in the chapter, we see the words that God will provide himself a lamb. And we see in verse number 14 of chapter 22 of Genesis, it says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And this literally means God will provide. God the Father has provided the sacrificial lamb of God. We read that right here in Genesis 22. This chapter is a typology it's a it's a it's a picture of a future event that's coming down into the ages in the time period of of Jesus literally declaring that he is going to be the lamb of God who was slain and we are going to shout out worthy is this lamb and he is the one who deserves glory honor and praise in John's gospel chapter 1 we read two times that John the Baptist when he saw the son of God he said behold the lamb of God and in one occasion he said, this Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I'm so thankful today that Almighty God provided a Lamb on Calvary's cross so that now today we don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. We don't have to go in to the altar. And we don't have to go into the tabernacle and to the temple and sacrifice all these animals. The Lamb of God was, was slain once and for all. God provided that. And today we should shout out as those in Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 said, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And He is worthy. And He's the only being in the world worthy of our worship. I also wrote down this. God the Father will provide our physical needs when He is preeminent in our lives. God the Father will provide our physical needs when he is preeminent in our lives. Matthew chapter 6, we read about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is speaking this, one of the greatest sermons ever preached throughout history. Every sermon he preached were the greatest sermons ever. But in this passage, we read about how he's speaking about the necessities of life. He's speaking about the lilies of the field and how God clothes them. He's speaking about the birds of the air and how God feeds them. He speaks about all these things. And he says in verse number 33, Jesus is speaking, God the Son is speaking, and I believe he's speaking about God the Father. And he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, If you keep God first in your life, then your financial needs, your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, your physical needs, everything that you need, God will provide. And I've seen that here at our church. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 speaks about the importance of making Christ preeminent in our life. In other words, He deserves first place. He is the only one. I know we talk about it a lot around here, but it's because it's important that every single day of our lives, Jesus has to have, God has to have priority and first place in our lives. I also wrote down this about the Father and providing. God the Father provides our needs from the eternal riches in Christ Jesus. God the Father provides our needs from the eternal riches in Christ Jesus. You see, Philippians, we read that, that God used a local 
church, the believers of Philippi, to provide the needs that the Apostle Paul had financially. In verse number 15, the Bible says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. They, they were the agents that God used to provide. God uses people. God uses circumstances to provide for us. But I want you to know this, that, that the house you're living in, I know that you got a job. I know that you have a salary. I know all that stuff. But it's God who blessed you with that job. God who provided you with that car. God who provided you with that house. God provided everything for you, okay? And here we see that the Bible says that Paul's acknowledging that God has provided for my needs through you. Wow. And then it says, verse number 17, not because I desire a gift. He says, I don't need the offering that you're giving me. I, I, I don't necessarily want it. I have a job, but you saw a need and you've given it to me. And now that's going into your account so that everything that I'm accomplishing with the gospel's sake, it's going to your account. Verse number 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But check out verse number 19. The one I wanted to say is, Paul, in this context, he says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God owns everything. He owns far more than anything man's mind could ever comprehend and fathom. He owns it all. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And God is able to provide your financial needs right now during this season of quarantine. God can do that. And that's why it's important that God is number one in our lives. Because when God is number one in our life, he's going to provide, he's going to come through every single time. And it's important that we acknowledge it and we thank him when he does like Paul did. And Paul delivered a message and said that just as God provided for my need, church, God is going to provide for your need. And just as God has provided for my needs through you, Clearbrook Baptist Church, God is going to provide for your needs personally as well. The role of God the Father in provision, He provides. The role of God the Father in the Son, He in the most respectable and reverent way fathered God the Son when He was on this earth. The role of God the Father in salvation, God the Father sent God the Son to the cross. And the role of God the Father was that he was actively involved in the created process, the creation process. But now I want to share with you a very important aspect about God the Father. I think this is my favorite aspect about God the Father. Now I want you to know that this list is not exhaustive. This sermon is not exhaustive about the attributes of God the Father. Patriology is the theological term we use to describe the doctrine of God the Father. But this is the most intriguing aspect of God the Father in my mind. And that's this, the role of the Father and adoption. The role of the Father and adoption. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I want to take you to a few passages of Scripture here. We were already in Romans chapter 8 a little while ago. But we see how rich this chapter is. And in verse number 15, in the context of the Holy Spirit of God, we see this, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, 
Father. The Bible says the Spirit bears witness, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Then heirs, if we're the children of God. I wrote down this. God the Father adopts His children by giving them His Holy Spirit. We see right here in this chapter that the evidence that you are born again, the evidence that you are regenerated, is because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. That is the greatest aspect about God the Father, I think. That how God takes us in and He adopts us and calls us His own and then gives us the Spirit to live in us. And that same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that is living and abiding in me and you. Galatians chapter 4. A passage sometimes we resort to during the Christmas season. But as I read this chapter, these verses, verses 3 through 6, I wrote down this thought. God the Father adopts His children not just by giving them His Holy Spirit, but by redeeming them from bondage. In context here, I believe Paul's referring to the bondage of the law. But I want you to know this, that whether we're underneath the bondage of the law or the bondage of sin, Jesus can step in and restore us and redeem us from this bondage. Look at verse number 3 of chapter 4. It says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. God the Father here sends forth God the Son, made of a woman, not created, but became incarnate, made under the law. So he came to live underneath the system of the law of God. But it says the reason why he was made of a woman and the reason why he was made underneath the law is so that he could redeem them who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons and daughters, if you will, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we can literally say that God is our Father. That God the Father adopts His children by redeeming us from bondage. I was in bondage. You were in bondage. We were in bondage in this world. And God stepped in and redeemed us. And that's what it means to be adopted into the faith of Jesus Christ. But then I wrote down this also. God the Father adopts his children by ordaining them to be part of the family of God. In Ephesians, now I will say, I will be the first to admit that these first few verses of the book of Ephesians, I still have not fully nailed down and I do not fully comprehend them. Maybe one day, by the grace of God, I will. But it says here in verses 3 through 5, I'm just going to read them to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated, or in other words, ordained us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. So I wrote down this as I read this. This is how I understand it. God the Father adopts His children by ordaining us to be part of His family. When I was growing up, the church we were involved in, we sang, I'm so glad I'm a part 
of the family of God. At the end of every service, those lyrics ring in my mind every time I think about the family of God and how once I was an orphan and bondage to sin, but Jesus stepped in and now brought me into God's family. And I've been ordained. I've been predestined, if you will, biblically speaking, right here to be part of that family. And I like what John said in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 1. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therewith the world knows us not, because it knew him not. I know this has been a lot of information, but I want you to know this, that the more we study the Word, the more we realize how little we know about the Word. The more we try to seek to understand God, the more we realize that God's ways are higher than our ways and that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, and unless the Holy Spirit comes and, and helps explain these passages, all they are, or just words on a page. But I want you to know this, that as a regenerated child of God, as I've been studying the Word of God, and as we've been studying as a church family, I believe this, the greater our understanding of who God is, then the greater our praise of God will be. As the individuals mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, 8, they cried out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And as the holy, excuse me, and as the songwriter said many, many years ago, he wrote these words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The more we understand about God the Father, the more we should praise God for making us in His image as triune beings. There is one and only one living and true God who is eternally existing and entirely expressed in three distinctive persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.